Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Mantha Zarmakopi for a conversation about ancient Roman villas in the Bay of Naples. Dr. Zarmakopi is a classical archaeologist who is trained as an architect and also undertakes underwater archaeological research. She is Morris Russell and Josephine Chitsey Williams Assistant Professor in Roman Architecture at the University of Pennsylvania, based in the U.S. She has written numerous publications over her career, including authoring the monograph, Designing for Luxury on the Bay of Naples, Villas and Landscapes, circa 100 BCE to 79 CE, which was published by Oxford University Press. And she has a forthcoming book, Roman Landscape, Eco-Critical Approaches to Early Imperial Italy, which will be published by Getty Publications. And Dr. Zarmakopi joins the show today from Turkey. Welcome to the show, Mantha. Thank you. Welcome. So say warm welcome. Thank you. Welcome and thank you, Mantha, as well. It's great to chat with you today. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Um, so let's start with a um, uh, more of an overview question. Uh, Mantha to create um, uh, sufficient background uh, for the subject matter that we're speaking about, which is largely um, ancient villas today. So what what is a villa in this context? So um, Roman villas were uh, both uh, seats of agricultural production, but also uh, locations of luxurious and leisurely living in the countryside. They evolved as a concept over time. They, be, they began as uh, uh, the location where somebody will you know, stay over at his or, or their estate and they will be uh, working the land. And then uh, during the first century, BC precisely became more of a, a status uh, a symbol for the emerging uh, uh, classes uh, of uh, the late Republican and early imperial period. So they became a way of uh, promoting uh, their uh, social power within the, uh, the vibrant political climate of that period. Okay. And what, uh, what, what brought you to studying Roman uh, villas in Naples specifically? Like why, 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 why Naples? What was it about that, that area? Um, they are very well preserved in Naples and their architecture is very well preserved. They have wall paintings that are very well preserved. They have sculptures. They have also, uh, their gardens are also, we have been able to study their remains of their gardens. So as somebody who was interested in architecture and with the whole, you know, sort of, uh, um, villa culture, there was a lot of information from the sites that I chose to study. And I had more of a fuller picture of their spaces as they were actually still, some of them are in very good condition. And so uh, within the Bay of Naples, because of the eruption of Vesuvius, a few of them have been pristinely preserved. That's why I chose that area. Okay. And around that that time, so the uh, late um, Roman Republic, um, early Roman Empire, um, period, when when these uh, villas were, were starting to form in the uh, in in the bay, um, 
was uh, was was the was Naples itself the the city? Um, what would it have been like at that point in time? Was was it was it urbanized at that point in time? Was was any any anything there? You know what I'm getting at. So you have you have the villas being built. What was you know um, close to the the villas? What what uh, in in more the city? What would have been there at that given time? So we have Naples, which still it was a city. We have ancient Naples, but the, the villas that uh, I'm looking at are also nearby other settlements and cities that we know of, and there were urban uh, uh, clusters uh, around the Bay of Naples. Um, so um, some of them are at the outskirts of Pompeii, others are on the outskirts of Herculaneum, others are in the settlement of Stabia. So, um, in fact, Strabo slightly later tells us that uh, the, the Bay of Naples uh, presents an uh, uninterrupted, you know, uh, uh, built, you know, landscape, you know, as one approaches the sea from the sea. So, what we see is like a really like a, um, a sort of, uh, you know, we have the cities that we know them, but then it seems that the, the peri-urban development was very extended. Okay, yeah, and, and that's probably an important um, point to mention and ma make sure I understand as well. So the bay, the bay, relatively speaking, the bay is quite large. Um, so, so we're talking about really a, a region, a region here, not not just like one one bay with a specific city beside it, right? Because there's there's Naples as a region. Re yeah, so we have Naples, Herculaneum, Pompeii, Stabia, and you know other you know sites in between, and so we have urban. Uh, uh, sites and clusters within that, and then we have the territory beyond, which at this time, in the early imperial period, because of the security of the countryside, people are like very, you know, um, it's no longer um, uh, there. The, the, there is no longer a fear that they will be attacked from the countryside, so people are starting building outside the towns, and you know they are. Uh, expanding their estates with them, they're investing in them by building luxurious houses precisely for this reason of competitive display that's taking on this time. And so this means basically that the urban you know, environment is starting to overflow in the countryside. Okay. Um, you mentioned earlier uh, the owners were, um, paraphrasing, but uh, working their land, I think you said something like that, and then eventually they're building uh, estates. So, for the most part, um, were the were were people living in these um, estates, these villas, full time, or was there a reasonable portion that were treating it as a uh, a, a vacation um, destination for for them for themselves? I would say that uh, all these estates were mostly uh, like a, an occupation to the side of the main occupation. Even if they were like in agricultural estates, they will have people who will be working in the land and they will not be the owners who are actually like really uh, toiling in, you know, in the land. So, um, so that's the, um, uh, the, um, the idea is that these uh, are um, Sort of either for agriculture or for pleasure, they're a, a second uh, 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 residence. Okay, okay. Um, can can you describe them? I'm sure there's a lot of shapes and sizes that we're speaking about, but generally speaking, can you describe what um, so people listening and myself can can visualize what a what a Roman villa in this period of time would have uh, looked like? Let's say in the 
for a luxurious villa, we were looking at uh, a very ample peristyle garden. So a peristyle is a colonnaded, uh, like surrounded by a colonnade uh, garden, uh, opening on two rooms. And then there will be also, uh, again, colonnades uh, uh, framing those gardens, but then giving access to the room behind them. And then these peristyles will be often have another, like, another row of colonnades, you know, on the exterior side, looking over the sea. So a series of uh, peristyle gardens and big rooms opening onto them with big openings. So there's a lot of framing of the landscape and bringing, you know, the natural world within the house by either, you know, building uh, gardens or like framing the view outside. There is a lot of play with waterworks also. Uh, there is same time all paintings that are either uh, showing views of the exterior world uh, it's like you know painted views of uh, landscapes or painted views of gardens so there's a lot of replication of the idea of the of the natural world and how the play of illusion and illusion within the houses but um, in their grander um, let's say version we see ample peristyle gardens big reception rooms and big dining rooms and uh, like just behind them like kind of quite of quite luxurious like you know smaller rooms for the accommodation and often we see a second floor you know uh, above them uh, uh, above the ground floor uh, that uh, would actually again have views over the bay of naples over the gardens and so on uh, imagine now I mentioned water, a number of them have uh, water canals in them, swimming pools, you know, there is uh, uh, all that uh, grand luxury that we associate nowadays with when we, when we speak about a villa, nowadays we have these associations and, you know, they kind of like map on to a certain extent with, you know, the luxurious living that we see in them and that's in their grander version. They're like, you know, sort of... Um, lesser sort of like you know not as grand you know villas which are um smaller maybe peristyles but still very you know the same uh design mannerisms you see them peristyle gardens views onto the you know onto the exterior like you know big landscape the framing of the views and so on what would the average approximately what would the average size of one of these villas have been and then what's the largest um one that you came across uh, like maybe square footage as a you know, as a metric maybe to use or some metric that I will give you I will give you square meters. Okay, go for it. Go for it. I'm sorry. I'm fine. I get it. Maybe you can figure it. Out. Um, so, um, the the biggest one uh, is around uh, ten thousand uh, square meters. Mm -hmm. um, I think I think that the biggest one is around that size. Uh, so um, they're quite big. Mm -hmm. So I mean, ten thousand square meters. Um, if you if you have you know the opportunity to uh, do the calculation is a really uh, grand house. It's bigger than ten thousand square feet. <laughs> that's sort of a joke, but I think that's accurate, right? Because the meter is bigger than a foot. <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think so, actually. But okay, maybe I'm. I, I, 
I could be, we'll, we'll put the disclaimer in there. I could be inaccurate. We don't have time for Google. Because I've been um, brought up with a metric system. I always have to kind of like think about this, but I think that this is not the case, but you know, I will, you know, again, I'll, uh, let's, I, will, I won't put my hand in the fire about this. I, immaterial. Yeah. Immaterial point, Im immaterial point for the conversation. Okay. Um, all right. So, so you mentioned water. So this is a very, you know, very basic kind of, you know, life, you know, life banal type, uh, question. How did they, how did they actually get water into for drinking purposes? Like how did they, how do they drink water day to day? What occurred? Well, that's the thing that, you know, the, these villas were, you know, enabled to build to the scale precisely because of the uh, technological advance of the period. Uh, so, um, water is brought in by uh, either aqueducts directly or by uh, branches that will be off the aqueduct if they're not nearby aqueducts. So uh, I mentioned, you know, pools, you know, waterworks and so on. And, you know, these are feeding, you know, are taking uh, uh, branches from the local aqueduct. Okay. Um, and as mentioned, I want to go a bit like explaining about technological advances. So, you know, I was speaking about this ample peristyles, you know, colonnaded gardens and so on. If you have like any kind of like idea in your mind about typical Greek architecture, like in the Hellenistic period, we have a lot of peristyle courtyards in the Hellenistic period. But if you go to any Hellenistic city, uh, you will see that these are built with marble, these columns. And, uh, you know, the structure is masonry, whereas what happens in the Roman period, and I'm sure that probably you have heard of this, this is the revolution of the Roman concrete. You know, they use Roman concrete and then these um, uh, columns will be with bricks or, you know, that they will be then plastered over. So they will not use, they will not have to um, uh, employ marble, you know, for all of these, you know, ample peristyles, you know, this kilometers, literally, I mean, it's not kilometers, but at least it's some, a few hundred meters around them, you know, uh, that are really like, you know, uh, facades of colonnades, they're not all of them in marble, but some of them are. And speaking that you are in Tunisia, in fact, <laughs> mm. um, so uh, we we know uh, this. Um, the, I have when I was in Tunisia, I hadn't seen this, uh, but the the Madia shipwreck that was found in Madia and its uh, its remains now are in the Bardo Museum. Uh, it was a villa kit en route to Italy. So we see like literally like you know marble candelabra, uh, the remains of the feet of Cline, uh, uh, and. Uh, columns that they would have featured in these villas and we know from sources that it's being criticized that they're bringing columns from the east to kind of like feature in this villa it's part of the critique of luxury and leisurely living in the countryside and in some cases uh, we will see the use of columns in like you know grand porticus a grand let's say propylon rather excuse me looking over the garden but for the really like you know for the long peristyle you know they would use a uh, 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 brick columns with plastic over with stucco. Okay. Um, in this period, in this area, were there, did, did um, and it's a bit anachronistic, I, I, I suppose, but um, did, did construction companies exist? And what's known about, um, what's known about uh, the, the, the people that would have been constructing these um, residences? What was their, their, you said their, like a, yeah, um, and again, I, it's probably because we're talking, 
you know, first century BCE-ish and first, first century CE. So I'm sure it's a bit anachronistic, but I think the concept's still there. Did, did, did you come across in your research any um, actual companies that existed that, you know, like, an, like, a, you know, like a, group, a group that would regularly build, uh, be hired to come in and, and build these uh, villas for the, um, for the, for the owners along the, along the, uh, the bay? So, no, we don't have evidence for companies as such. And in fact, you know, a lot of the discussion that takes place, because I'm interested in architecture, who is the architect, right? So uh, we don't know, uh, certainly the architects of the period didn't have the status of, you know, the stardom architects and so on, although we do know a few of them. And, you know, in fact, I'm now in Teo studying the product of one such known case. Uh, but um, uh, the... Um, uh, but uh, in that period, uh, we know uh, a few architects from inscriptions, and we know that they're like you know collaborating with engineers and so on. Mm -hmm. And it's basically um, their workshops. So uh, we are have, there has not been so much work done about this kind of architecture, whether we can actually like say the same workshop that worked in X villa that worked in there in another villa. Much more has much more such work has been done in painting, where people can actually tell, you know, the painter painting technique, and they can identify hands and how they have actually, like, you know, conducted their work. So, in the let's say the construction industry in general, much more like you know precise work has been done in figuring out that there were workshops in of these painters, and we can you know see that they are like actually doing jobs within Pompeii, and we can see like you know which you know how they have actually painted. But less so, we have been able to trace that kind of like um, um, lineage of the architecture from one you know to the other because there hasn't there is there hasn't been such an identifying criterion in you know the architecture that can lead us to that. I mean, in in general, you know, I uh, we assume that there would have been similarly to the um, uh, the paintings uh, uh, to the to production of paintings which is part of this construction industry of course you know if you're like thinking of uh, a major company one you know in the in the terms that you kind of like phrased it it's like you know it mm -hmm. comprises everything right so uh, so yes i would assume that this is something that you know is happening in that uh, industry as well the building industry around them uh, but we don't know as much about it yeah so it's been it's a little bit more difficult to link based on the architecture to link um certain buildings to certain ar architects is that is that what you're getting at yeah yeah i mean we do know as i said we do know a few like you know well-known cases of architects that are very famous that they're written about in the sources about these other projects uh we hear very much from the owners themselves are speaking with an architect about that specific villa that they're building they have an input in that so it seems that the owner himself had and like you know a personal interest we read cicero's letters about you know how he's interested in like you know creating an academia like you know in his uh, villa so he has a specific interest in bringing like this you know a kind of um, a gymnasium like structure what is, what is that it's basically this peristyle that i mentioned looking onto the garden this peristyle structure is coming from the gymnasium in the Hellenistic gymnasium the educational institutions in the hellenistic uh, period in the hellenistic east where in fact these Romans have studied and philosophy and bringing it back in their leisurely villas, they want to reproduce this culture of education and learn, like you know, leisure. Uh, so basically, in reading 
philosophy in a leisurely, like, you know, environment that they have recreated after the Greeks. And in these cases, we hear that he has discussed with the designer how to do this. Okay. But, but uh, so for example, uh, we don't know where Cicero's villas are, but, you know, mm. we have heard some of this, or, you know, we hear about Atticus and so on. So uh, we hear about also Pliny uh, the Younger describes his villas, and so we have some information about his concerns about the designs. And so we have some authors, let's say, there that gives us some information about their sites. And we have, you know, at least, you know, we have found, you know, sites that sort of, you know, map onto the demands of the, the map onto the descriptions of them. So we have like found sites that are probably Clinton's villas. Oh, interesting. In the, in the bay? In, in this? Not in the bay. Okay, somewhere else? Okay. Yes. Any, um, any past, um, uh, emperors or consuls in this in this period that has been linked to any of the villas well uh, there is a famous one in the bay uh, in capri by tiberius uh, okay. there is the pafsilipon on the northern uh, side of the bay which we know it's an imperial estate also uh, after uh, the late uh, after the beginning of the first century c and there is, of course, the famous paradigm of somebody who is uh, very much involved in the architecture of his villa is Hadrian's villa. Interesting. In uh, in in the bay. Um, in Tivoli, in uh, outside Rome. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we have some cases that we know that you know the owners were very much involved. We have the product. In fact, we can see it, and you know these are very uh, happy coincidences. I mean, one of my villas. Uh, we don't know what's the designer but we there has been a great speculation about the owner and you know i would say that this is very close to the uh, the um, being the, the, the truth so it's um uh it's probably the father-in-law of uh, caesar that uh, owned this villa the villa of papyri okay interesting um urination and defecation so in other words go into the loo in this period <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yeah. Where is he going? Where is he going with this question? So, so in this, in, in this, I was like thinking, did I hear correctly? <laughs> yeah, there was certainly no segue for that uh, for that for that question. So, so uh, you know, an, another minutia type type question. How? What was the uh, what was the format um, on, on these estates for people to go to the go to the loo? There is the uh, uh, there is a whole section of uh, a toilet there. Yes. Which was much more of a public situation, let's say, than uh, uh, would be envisaged as a toilet nowadays. I mean, so there there are installations for uh, uh, for toilets and bathrooms are uh, are uh, much more uh, sort of like grander. Like you know, there is this whole you know uh, tradition of Roman baths that you know, of course. Um, but there is also the uh, the loo, as you would say, and it's uh, um, of course designed uh, in the house. Yeah. Okay. Um, were basements or cellars, were they commonly built? Oh, yeah, 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 they were. Um, and uh, some of the, you know, imagine all these sites have like really, um, they're built on various terrains. And so the uh, various um, terrains, excuse me, I, might, I meant like, you know, on sloping ground. So they're like, you know, some of these, you know, semi-basements mm. would then lead on to other sites so some of them are used for storage some of them are used for you know pleasurely walks that walk then onto the other level and um, so this is uh, something yeah that's exploited uh, in, extensively in fact. at the height in this area 
um, in this in this period that we're speaking about, what uh, what approximate number of villas or estates would have existed? Like, are we talking about uh, hundreds? Are we talking about you know maybe forty? Uh, you know, along the bay, can you can you quantify it in some way? I should you know remember the number, but I, we're definitely sticking uh, above hundred and seventy-seven thousand. It could be over. Could be. Could have been over a thousand. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there has been a recent. Uh, um, so we have um, focused uh, around uh, the sites that we know, and they have been excavated and they're pristinely uh, sort of uh, um, uh, preserved. Uh, but a recent uh, study, in fact, uh, by uh, um, the uh, by a German project that they started to look at, you know, geophysics and you know, trying to look at the area and the extension of the agricultural production around uh, Pompeii and the broader, like you know, uh, Bay of Naples. Uh, I don't remember the exact number, but it showed, like you know, basically that the whole area was like you know a territory that was being exploited. So, um, uh, Dr. Eve McDonald has been on the show b- before. Um, and we had a conversation about uh, Carthage, and this was before I arrived in uh, Tunisia. And I told you before coming on the show, I was on the outskirts of Carthage today, and had to I had to walk back with my dog so I could get on on our on the show on time to ch- to chat with you. So I didn't quite I don't think I quite made it to Carthage um, uh, t- today. Um, of course, I plan to go soon. But what what um, Dr. McDonald um, said in that in that episode on Carthage was that um, there's there's um, residences. In Carthage, there's you know there's archaeological uh, areas, and they they kind of weave in and out of each other. So when you go to the Bay of Naples, and when you've done work in this area um, before, what's what's it, what's it like as uh, as an archaeologist uh, uh, now? Is it, it, it are you are you do, were you doing certain work literally on people's estates like currently, um, or were these or or did you not always have permission to, to go out, to, to go on to certain estates and then you were going on other spots where where there was more there it wasn't a residence you know what I'm getting at so when, when you go now as a professional to the Bay of Naples for this kind of work what's the lay of the land like well um, many of these uh, uh, estates have been uh, these villa estates have been excavated and so there is no problem to go and visit them uh, but of course, uh, all these we we usually find out, find out about other you know uh, sites when there are rescue excavations. There is you know, some other type of work that's being done, and you know this is uh, constantly evolving in a way. Um, so um, I would say that as professionals nowadays, we want to focus on the major sites without a problem, and you know there is so much work to be done on them. You know right now, but uh, when we have access to other um, uh, other sites through uh, new excavations, for example, you know, uh, I think, uh, yes, the Villa Imperial is now being uh, uh, excavated by the, the superintendenza. So, like, you know, another site that was just outside the walls that they found recently and they're excavating. So, I think that um, as a professional, we don't have a problem having access to sites, but there is, of course, not more that can be done by the local authorities. And then, you know, eventually, you know, you get access to it when it's being cleared up. But I guess it's always like an issue of um, balancing um, the people's um, <clears throat> wish to <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> wish to um, 
uh, have keep their properties because you know what's happening when you know there's an archaeologist that finds something then you have to actually like you know take over the land and so on so actually the villa of the papyri uh, this amazing site that we have so much you know well preserved and um, it's still underground um it's still underground and the modern ercolano is on top of that villa and so it, in order to excavate it you know uh, fully one would have to buy off the properties from that you know from those owners and so on um so there, there is this like no part of uh, negotiation between uh, who is there and is living, and you know at what extent also it makes sense to actually like excavate that. Can we find information we need without revealing it? So I think it's a uh, nowadays in archaeology we're trying to be um, a to uh, involve the community that is there, you know, educate them and you know have a, a meaningful exchange. And the second and, and B and see what is actually meaningful to excavate and if we find yet another you know villa will that you know help us or you know uh to, you know to kind of like make more informed choices about the sites that we're excavating yes understood so uh so you just completed recently a project um on delos right uh, the greek greek island you want to take a moment and share with everybody what uh the work that you did and uh that that project Yes, great. Um, so Delos is an important trading uh, point in the late Hellenistic period. It's an important sanctuary from the archaic period uh, onwards, uh, a sanctuary to Apollo. But in the late Hellenistic period becomes a, an important trading hub between the East and West when Rome expands uh, its power towards the Hellenistic East. And uh, because of its importance as a port of trade in this period, it is uh, actually uh, a free port that's what the romans do they give it the the status of a free port mm. um there is an economic development obviously uh, on the island and an urban development and mm-hmm. the city sort of uh, is rapidly urbanized part of the city however and its harbor infrastructure are partly underwater because of the relative sea level change from mm. antiquity till now and so um, my interest was in understanding the extent of the city, but also primarily the harbor infrastructures and how does this island accommodate this important emporium in this period. So we uh, finished the, uh, the survey of the, the surveying the harbor infrastructures, and then we continued on to do a shipwreck survey around mm. the island to understand a bit further the economy of that trade network uh, um, that, we, uh, that Delos was part of interesting so uh, just to uh, mm-hmm. find this has been a project that has been going on for seven years now and mm-hmm. uh, it's this was the last year of this underwater of this shipwreck survey so you did some underwater archaeological work in that process right mm-hmm. what yes. uh yeah and what if you were to summarize and it's seven years so it's so um you know you know i I'm, i understand that but but if you were to if you were to summarize what what was what was um, what's now known about um, about that area um, that 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 that's underwater that um, that just wasn't known uh, to contemporaries nowadays um, as a result of the project. Uh, first of all, uh, we uh, and that was the, the reason for which I started the project. Uh, people had tried to uh, explain the uh, the Delos uh, uh, trade 
trading center by looking only at the main harbor and the uh, premise of the project was to look beyond the main harbor and look at uh, anchorages around the island and infrastructure for uh, small harbors around the island and prove that the main harbor was not the only place where the emporium mm. was served from where the emporium was served. So we did go around and found installations or evidence for uh, um, anchorages around the island. Uh, so that's mm -hmm. something that uh, that was the sort of uh, hypothesis, and we proved it that there mm -hmm. is that Delos didn't operate only uh, on the base of the main harbor area, which was, as people had noted also before, insufficient to uh, accommodate this big port of trade. And the other one uh, was that uh, we looked at um, so that was a. Uh, the harbor uh, infrastructure that we looked at and then the, the other one which is the shipwreck survey uh, we found evidence of what we would have expected late hellenistic and roman shipwrecks but also a late roman shipwreck uh, which also corroborates the evidence that we have found in recent years on the island that delos does not actually does not get abandoned after the first century bc which is a kind of a literary topos in um the study of Delos, that uh, then it's being abandoned after the first century BC and put Aeoli and Rome then takes over as, as main harbors. Uh, but so we found this important shipwreck that uh, shows us that um, trade continues well into the middle, you know, in the in the middle of the third century CE. Mm -hmm. And evidence that has been recently also uh, attracted attention on the island has shown that uh, uh, Delos is uh, uh, continuously occupied in this period maybe another book in the future oh well the, this is a, a this is a book i've been working on uh, <laughs> for i mean the the urban development the rapid urban development of delos and its uh, harbor infrastructure right. and so on this is a book yes uh, that right. i've been working on for some time now but uh, of course the first the 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 publication that we'll do as a, as a team because this has been part of a collaborative project will publish the harbor infrastructures and the shipwreck survey and so on. This will be another edited volume between colleagues that we have been working on this. But the synthesis of this material, the reason for which I started the underwater survey in the first place, because I wanted to explain the how did this island accommodate this big emporium and what is happening in this period. And uh, we're speaking about a community that is international. We're speaking about Italians, Romans, people are coming from you know, all over the world at this point in Delos in order to do business mm. because precisely it's a free port of trade. Okay, Mantha. Thanks for coming on the show. It's been enjoyable speaking with you and enjoy your work and time in Turkey. Thank you, Andrea. <laughs> so again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Zarmakopi wrote, Designing for Luxury on the Bay of Naples, Villas and Landscapes, circa 100 BCE to 79 CE, and she has a forthcoming book, Roman Landscape, Eco-Critical Approaches to Early Imperial Italy. I'll drop a link to the former book and a link to the latter one when it becomes available in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Mantha and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.